Happy New Year and welcome back to Roshcast for episode 11. That's right. New Year, same high quality review in 10 to 15 minutes a week. For our fellow resident listeners out there, I'm sure you're all keenly aware, but the in-service is right around the corner on February 22nd. No need to stress out though. There's still plenty of time to pack in some solid review. Don't forget to run through old episodes if you struggled with any of the material there. And let me also throw in a quick plug for our blog, roshreview.com forward slash blog, which not only has our show notes, but also hosts some mini quizzes and test taking strategies from some top testers around the country. And the best part, it's all free. Hard to say no to free board prep. Let's get warmed up with a rapid review. Jeff, what serum lithium concentration requires treatment? For acute ingestions, a concentration of four milliequivalents per liter or greater requires emergent dialysis. In chronic ingestions, a level of greater than 2.5 milliequivalents per liter requires emergent dialysis. Additionally, any patient with neurologic findings secondary to their ingestion requires treatment. And what's the treatment for an acute lead overdose? Lead poisoning is treated with either oral, succimer, or IV EDTA. Remember the mnemonic, it sucks to eat lead. And lastly, how do you treat a wide complex tachydysrhythmia in a patient presenting with an amphetamine overdose? Well, in amphetamine overdoses, you should use sodium bicarbonate for the EKG abnormalities. But don't forget to address the agitation with benzodiazepines and the hyperthermia with cooling, which will also help control the symptoms. Perfect. Let's move on to new material for this week. All right. It looks like we have some more toxicology here. An 88-year-old man with Parkinson's disease presents with confusion. He has mistakenly put on five rivastigmine patches instead of the prescribed single patch. What physical examination finding would you expect to find in this patient? Is it A, constipation, B, dry skin, C, lacrimation, or D, medriasis? So rivastigmine is an acetylcholine esterase inhibitor, and this poor guy has clearly overdosed, leading to a buildup of acetylcholine. He would present with a cholinergic toxidrome. The answer here would be choice C, lacrimation. Exactly. Choices A, B, and D, or constipation, dry skin, and medriasis are all part of the anticholinergic toxidrome. There are a few classic mnemonics that people often use for these toxidromes. For the cholinergic toxidrome, remember sludge. S for salivation, L for lacrimation, U for urination, D for diarrhea, G for GI cramps, and E for emesis. And don't forget about the killer Bs, bradycardia, bronchospasm, and bronchorrhea, which are some of the more deadly complications of a cholinergic overdose. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have the anticholinergic toxidrome, in which you would expect to see hyperthermia, medriasis, dry mouth and urinary retention, and confusion. Many people use the phrase hot as a hair, blind as a bat, dry as a bone, red as a beet, and mad as a hatter as a useful memory tool. Enough talks. Let's move on to the next question. What is the most common cause of superior vena cava syndrome? Is it A, goiter, B, indwelling central venous catheter, C, malignancy, or D, thrombosis? Well, this one's got to be choice C. Malignancy is definitely the most common cause of SVC syndrome. That's correct. And can you name some of the main culprit tumors? Well, there's a couple here. You have bronchogenic carcinoma, small cell lung cancer, squamous cell lung cancer, and lymphoma. They've all been shown to cause SVC syndrome by compressing either the SVC or the other mediastinal structures. And what's the classic presentation? Well, the most common presenting symptom is actually dyspnea, but other symptoms include facial and upper extremity edema, headache, chest pain, facial plethora, and distended neck and chest veins. One other clue that you should try to elicit from a patient who you think has SVC syndrome is that the symptoms are worse in the morning, since blood doesn't have the benefit of gravity to pull it past the obstruction while laying horizontally. And although we didn't ask about it here, the treatment is typically diuretics, steroids, and oncologic care for the primary cancer, if that's the case. This is a relatively rare condition, so let's move on to something we deal with almost daily, acid-base abnormalities. You're up for this one. A pH of 7.1, bicarb of 15, and a PCO2 of 30 is best described by which of the following primary acid-base disorders? 
Is it A, a metabolic acidosis, B, a metabolic alkalosis, C, a respiratory acidosis, or D, a respiratory alkalosis? With the pH of 7.1, this is by definition an acidosis, so choices B and D are incorrect. The bicarb of 15 makes this a primary metabolic acidosis, so the answer choice here is A. Exactly, and I think your process here was spot on, which is the key to any acid-based question. The first step is to look at the pH and determine acidosis versus alkalosis. The next step is to look at the bicarb and PCO2. Bicarb and PCO2 will always go in the same direction if there is only a single disturbance in play. The patient is acidotic and the bicarb and PCO2 are low, this points to a primary metabolic acidosis, whereas if the bicarb and PCO2 are elevated, this must be a primary respiratory acidosis. And Winter's formula can also be useful when considering metabolic acidosis. Winter's formula dictates that the PCO2 should be roughly equal to 1.5 times the bicarb plus 8 plus or minus 2. This would give you an appropriate respiratory compensation. If the measured PCO2 is less than the expected value from Winter's formula, there is a concomitant respiratory alkalosis. If the measured PCO2 is greater than the expectation from Winter's formula, there would be a concomitant respiratory acidosis. And since this is turning into a mnemonic-heavy episode, there is a classic to remember here. You can use mud piles to remember the causes of an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, iron or INH, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylates. Right, and for a normal anion gap acidosis, we have a lesser-known mnemonic for you. Hard-ass. Hyperalimentation, Addison disease, RTA, diarrhea, acetazolamide, spironolactone, and saline infusion, which can all be responsible. That's a pretty good mnemonic that I haven't heard before. You're up again for the next question. Which of the following is true in post-cardiac arrest patients who experience a return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC? Is it A, antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapy should be avoided in post-arrest patients? B, post-arrest angioplasty of acute coronary lesions with a normal ECG has been shown to be an independent predictor of survival after cardiac arrest. Or C, post-arrest prophylactic antiarrhythmic therapy has been shown to reduce adverse events. Or D, there is no proven benefit to therapeutic hypothermia. I'm going to go through this one by one. Choice D is wrong because therapeutic hypothermia has been definitively associated with improved survival and functional outcomes in patients with ROSC. Choice C is wrong because there's no proven benefit to routine use of antiarrhythmics. However, it's reasonable to start an antiarrhythmic if that drug is associated with restoring a perfusing rhythm, such as giving intra-rest amiodarone to achieve ROSC. That leaves us with the answer choices A and B. For choice A, as long as there is no evidence of active hemorrhage, antiplatelet agents really should be considered in all post-ROSC patients. So choice B must be the correct answer. Even in the setting of a normal EKG without acute ST elevations, Post-arrest cardiac cath has been shown to be an independent predictor of survival. Way to work through that one. Definitely one of the tougher questions we've had with only 49% of Rosh Review users getting it right, but you definitely hit on all the most important points. There are only a few interventions that have been shown to improve outcomes in cardiac arrest, so it's important to remember them. Some of the proven interventions in cardiac arrest are AED use, early bystander CPR, amiodarone and shock-resistant VFib or VTAC, and therapeutic hypothermia. Cardiac arrest is one of the most difficult things to study because outcomes are generally quite poor, so it's really important to do the things we know work. Let's move on to the next question. A mother delivered a full-term boy in the ED about 30 minutes ago. On exam, he has cyanosis of the distal extremities. His mucous membranes and trunk are pink, and he has plus two distal pulses. No murmurs are heard. His remaining physical exam was normal. Which of the following is most likely his pulse oximetry reading? Is it A, 64 to 73%, B, 74 to 83%, C, 84 to 93%, or D, 94 to 100%. Another pretty tough question here. 
So this is referring to acrocyanosis, which is a transient blue discoloration of the hands and feet when a newborn is cold, which means the pulse oximetry is likely normal, which leaves us with choice D, 94 to 100%. Exactly. This is a benign, self-limited condition and is not true cyanosis. In true cyanosis, the mucous membranes are also blue. And I have one more bonus question for you. What is cutis marmorata? Not something we see often in the ED, but cutis marmorata is the benign, lacy, reddish, mottled skin appearance of the extremities that can be associated with acrocyanosis. Perfect. Let's do one last question. Sure. You're up for the last one. A 53-year-old man presents to the emergency department with vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal cramping, which occurred one hour after eating a meal prepared from mushrooms he found growing in the forest. Which of the following most predicts a benign course of the disease? Is it A, the absence of neurologic symptoms, B, dots or scales on the cap of the mushroom, C, normal serum LFTs on initial presentation, or D, the symptoms occurring within two hours of ingestion? The correct answer here would have to be choice D. Early onset of GI symptoms definitely points to a benign course. Exactly. Late onset symptoms that occur more than six hours after the mushroom ingestion predicts a more serious and potentially fatal course. The Amanita species of mushrooms causes the majority of fatalities due to the potent renal and hepatotoxin, the amatoxin. There are four stages of classic amatoxin poisoning. In the first stage, that can last up to 24 hours, typically has no symptoms at all. In the second stage, GI symptoms predominate. In the third stage, typically one to two days after the ingestion, symptoms improve but the LFTs begin to rise. In the last stage, the fourth stage, which occurs two to four days after the ingestion, the patient may develop hyperbilirubinemia, coagulopathy, hypoglycemia, hepatorenal syndrome, and even hepatic encephalopathy. And just to go over the other answer choices here, choice A is incorrect as amnita intoxication often has no neurologic symptoms at all. Choice B, the dots or scales on the cap of the mushroom, that points exactly to the amnita species. Lastly, for choice C, normal LFTs are actually common in the early stages of amnita toxicity, so that wouldn't be the correct answer here either. Yeah, and unfortunately, there is no antidote for amanita poisoning. The mortality is pretty high, quoted as high as 10 to 30%. You can try activated charcoal or hemoperfusion if you have a clear story in an early presentation, but that's not often the case. All right, so that wraps up the new material for episode 11. Let's end with a rapid review. The cholinergic toxidrome is marked by salivation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, GI upset, and hemesis. The most deadly symptoms can be easily remembered by the killer bees bronchorrhea, bronchospasm, and bradycardia. The anticholinergic toxidrome is marked by hyperthermia, madriasis, dry mouth, urinary retention, and confusion. Malignancy is the most common cause of SVC syndrome, with bronchogenic carcinoma, small cell lung cancer, squamous cell lung cancer, and lymphoma being the most common causes. Dyspnea is the most common presenting symptom for SVC syndrome. In a metabolic acidosis, you can use Winter's formula, which dictates that the PCO2 should be one and a half times the bicarb plus eight plus or minus two for appropriate respiratory compensation. The mnemonic mud piles can be used to remember the causes of an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Methanol, uremia, DKA, propylene glycol, iron or INH, lactic acidosis, ethylene glycol, and salicylates. For the causes of a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, remember hard ass. Hyperalimentation, Addison disease, RTA, diarrhea, acetazolamide, spironolactone, and saline infusion. In patients with post-cardiac arrest ROSC, cardiac catheterization should be considered even in the setting of a normal EKG. In cardiac arrest, AED use, early bystander CPR, amiodarone and shock-resistant VFib or VTAC, and therapeutic hypothermia are all proven interventions to improve outcomes. Acrocyanosis is a transient blue discoloration of the hands and feet, which can occur when a newborn is cold. 
Typically, the pulse oximetry is normal in such cases. Amanita mushrooms produce a deadly renal and hepatotoxin, the amatoxin. Amatoxin poisoning leads to four stages of symptoms culminating in liver failure. Mortality is commonly cited as 10 to 30%. Activated charcoal and hemoperfusion can be considered. The Amanita species of mushrooms can be identified by the dots and scales on their cap. From mushroom ingestion to post-ROSC cardiac care, that concludes episode 11. See you all next week.